passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, uh, for the rest of us, we're beginning this morning a, a new series uh, for the next six weeks, just looking at the importance of spiritual health, and that's what we'll be focusing on this morning. And um, as, we, as we turn our attention to this, uh, I think it's just a, a good reminder to us of the importance of health. Um, health matters, and, and that's certainly true of, of physical health. I think everyone in here would agree with that statement, that it is important to be healthy, and yet there's a great deal of difference between acknowledging the importance of health, and then actually living a healthy life. Acknowledging the importance of health doesn't always make a difference in how we eat. It uh, doesn't make al- always make a difference in how, we, uh, how active we are. And, and I would say, um, perhaps more importantly, that um, most of us, regardless of whether or not we're actually healthy or not, would, if we were asked, say, well, you know, am I healthy? I could be healthier, but, but as a whole, yes, I'm a relatively healthy person. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm relatively healthy. And if we were pushed on that and asked, okay, well, what exactly are, what's your basis for saying that you're a healthy person? Maybe we would say, well, I'm not as, as unhealthy as that person over there. Or you look at the rest of my generation, and, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. We wouldn't really have something specific, maybe just a comparison to other people. And that's why measurements checks, scales, those kind of things are so important for us. I can say that I am healthy, but then if I go to the doctor and I have a, a, you know, get my blood pressure taken and I have extremely high blood pressure, I can't argue with that. It's an important thing to to have these measurements that we can use to to guide ourselves to to answering that question, am I actually a healthy person? And if that's true with our, our physical health, should also be true of our spiritual health as well. If you were to ask a group of Christians, I mean, look around you at those that are sitting next to you, and you were to ask them, are you a healthy person? Are you spiritually healthy? Are you spiritually mature? I would guess that you would probably get a similar response. This statement of, well, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm making progress in the faith. But, but as a whole, yes, I, I'm relatively spiritually mature. And again, we would say, okay, what, what exactly is our reasoning for giving that answer? For, for many of us, it's the length of time that we have been a Christian. So, you know, how, are you spiritually mature? Are you spiritually healthy? Well, yeah, I've, I've been a Christian for a number of years, as though that automatically translates into spiritual health and maturity. But if we look at the Bible, there's, there's like no correlation between spiritual health and the length of time that you have been a Christian. In fact, the author of Hebrews, writing to the church in the first century, he says, you should be more spiritually mature than you actually are based off of how long you have been a Christian. He says, you've been a Christian long enough that you should be ready for meat, and yet you're still like infants in the faith. Consider these words from Hebrews chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, by distinguishing good from evil. 
Now, don't get caught up in the specifics of what the author of Hebrews is referring to there and missing, and you miss the point. These are people who should be healthy, should be mature based off of a length of time, and yet they are not. And the reality for us is that spiritual health has nothing to do with the length of time that you've been a Christian, the length of time that you have been a believer. What we need then is a way to ask ourselves to be really honest with ourselves. Am I spiritually healthy? That's actually the heart of Paul's question to the church in Corinth. He's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. He says this at the end of his letter, 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. In other words, he's saying it is a good thing to not just assume that you are spiritually healthy, but rather to reflect on whether or not we are mature. And if we are mature, why we would say that we are mature, why we would say that we are immature. And that's what we're going to look at over the next six weeks. We're going to look at at six questions that can give us some measurements, not perfect by any means, but measurements to help us diagnose whether we are spiritually healthy. Now, the, the number six here is, is relatively arbitrary. It's not comprehensive. Some books that I've read say 10 measurements to, to diagnose your spiritual health. Others give nine. Some give 12. If I was in a competition, I could probably come up with more. That's not the important thing. The, the, the number doesn't matter. The focus instead is on the importance of looking at our hearts, examining ourselves, as Paul says, to intentionally and honestly ask the question, am I spiritually healthy? And then to use specific evidence to point to that reason of health. In other words, we don't want to be people who who just assume that we are healthy, but instead we want to be people who are willing to take a long look in the mirror of God's word and consider whether or not we have been faithful followers of Jesus, faithful disciples of Jesus. But before we get to that, as we're talking about the importance of spiritual health, I want to just take a moment to to consider the end goal. When we talk about spiritual health, why does spiritual health matter? Physical health matters because it is literally a life or death situation. What about spiritual health? Why does spiritual health matter? To answer that question, we have to ask another and, and more important question for ourselves. What is your purpose in life? Why have you been created? Why did God create every single one of us? And if we look at the the testimony of the Bible, we will see that the answer is to give God glory. The testimony of the Bible from the beginning to the end is that God cares deeply about his glory. And if you're new to that idea, it might sound a little odd to you, maybe even sounds a little bit narcissistic. If I were to say that my deepest concern is my own glory, you would think I was an arrogant egomaniac. But there's a key difference here between God and Jordan. I'm not God, neither are you. God's concern for his glory isn't arrogance. It's God seeking to to make much of the greatest good, the most important thing in the entire universe. If God is the greatest good in the entire universe, then for God to make much of something else at the expense of himself would be a form of idolatry. God is chiefly concerned with his glory because he knows more than anyone else how glorious he is, 
how good he is. And so for God to pursue your greatest good in the world, the greatest thing that he could ever give to humanity, it means he has to be deeply passionate about making much of his own glory. We look at the testimony of the Bible, we see that this is God's purpose in judgment. Why does God bring judgment in the Old Testament? You look at the book of Exodus and it says this, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he, Pharaoh, will pursue them, the people of Israel, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And his glory, God's glory, is, is God's aim in salvation as well. It says this in Isaiah, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel for my glory. The glory of God is God's concern in all of his dealings with humanity. The reason why God creates a new people, makes a new people to follow him, the church, is for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43, everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. So it stands to reason that God expects people, his people, to live for his glory, which is exactly what we see in the New Testament. You look at the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, whatever you do, do so, do all for the glory of God. You look at 1 Peter chapter 4, it says this, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is passionate about his glory, and he created you to give him glory. If you want to know what your purpose in life is, you want to know why God created you, it is so that you would bring God glory, that your life would be a billboard to all of creation declaring the greatness and majesty and awesomeness of this good God. But then there's a question. If we understand, if we recognize that the purpose of our lives that we've been created to give God glory, we might say, well, how exactly do I do that? How do I bring God glory with my life? Paul actually answers that while writing to the church in Philippi. He's giving this, this insight while praying for the church. His, his chief concern in this prayer is this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What we see here is Paul's chief concern for the church in Philippi is that they would grow in love so that they are increasingly blameless, they're increasingly like Jesus, that they are increasingly bearing fruit. And the reason why, why does he want them to bear fruit? It's for the glory and praise of God. So if you want to know how to glorify God, there's your answer. It's to abound in love. It's to increasingly model Christ. It's to bear fruit. In other words, it's to grow in Christ Jesus, to be spiritually healthy. God desires that you would grow in the faith because when you grow to be more like Jesus, he receives more glory. You are living out your calling. You are living out your purpose of your very life itself. Spiritual health matters because your life matters. And it would be a pity to waste your life. 
This is such an important topic because we cannot afford to give ourselves a false sense of comfort by lying to ourselves about how healthy we are or are not. Here's what I mean by that. In the midst of this series, it might be uncomfortable for us as we look at some of these questions to see that we are spiritually immature and yet it is far better to face the sobering reality of our immaturity than to delude ourselves into this false sense of comfort that we are further along, that we are bringing God more glory than we actually are. And so over the course of these next six weeks, we're going to look at these various areas of spiritual health, and, and I don't want you to tune out. Don't conclude as you, you open your bulletin and you look at the title of the sermon, the focus of our Sunday morning, and conclude, you know, I don't really need to hear this because your life is too precious to waste, to miss out on giving God the glory he is due. God's glory is too valuable for you to ignore the question of whether you are spiritually healthy or not. So this morning, we're going to kind of set the foundation for the rest of our series. We're going to look at our relationship with the word of God. And to do that, We're going to be looking at someone in the Old Testament who was passionate about the glory of God among his generation. He did all that he could in order to bring God glory, to see God magnified among his fellow Israelites. And he did that by dedicating his life to the word of God. He lived 450 years before Jesus when the people of Israel had been kicked out of the promised land for their wickedness. They were dwelling in exile in Babylon. He was a priest. He was a scribe who eventually leads a people, a group of people of Israel back to the promised land, to Jerusalem. That's not significant because it's a change of address. It's significant because it's a statement of his faith. That God's promises are tied up with the land of Israel. In spite of Israel's rebellion against God, he's saying, you know what, I believe that God will still keep his promises, that God will still bring himself glory through his people. This man's name was Ezra. So we're going to go ahead and and look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. We're just going to look at one verse for the bulk of our time this morning, and then we're going to consider another verse later on in Ezra. As we consider the example of Ezra, we're going to notice that there are five observations. There's five things that we can learn from Ezra's commitment to the Word of God, to the glory of God, and we'll consider each of those in turn this morning. Would you pray with me once more as we jump in to the book of Ezra? Lord, as we open your word, we do echo the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, God, that you would send your spirit to give us eyes to see. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We confess that your spirit alone is the one who gives us eyes to see, though your spirit alone is the one who who opens our deaf ears. And so we as your people, we say that we are desperate to hear from you. We need you to speak. We need you to strengthen our hearts to not only hear, but also to respond to your word. And we ask these things for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text is Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. This is a beautiful verse, Um, just a little plug here. Um, Well worth setting this verse to memory. It's a short verse. It's it's really good to, to memorize. It carries particular importance for my wife and me. Um, our, our last son, our youngest son, is named Ezra. This has been our prayer for him since he was born. It is a very, very powerful verse. Uh, please follow along as I read aloud Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. 
For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's consider this verse phrase by phrase. First, we notice that it says that Ezra set his heart. That word for there at the beginning of this verse reminds us or points us back to what has come before, that we have to read this passage in light of what has come before. And so we ask ourselves, what exactly has come before this moment in the book of Ezra? And we see, of all things, Ezra's travel itinerary. So, so what exactly is Ezra doing? The year is 458 BC, about 125 years before that. The people of Israel, this nation called Judah, they were destroyed because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion against God. God warned them all the way back, hundreds of years before that, in the book of Deuteronomy, that if they rebelled against him, if they rebelled against all of God's commands, then they would lead to judgment, and that judgment would culminate in them getting kicked out of the promised land. And that's exactly what happens because Judah doesn't listen. Judah doesn't listen. Jerusalem is destroyed. They're dragged away to live in this pagan land. This land is called Babylon. But just because the exile was a form of judgment doesn't mean that God was done working with his people, with his plan to save humanity. He promises that after about 70 years in exile, he's going to allow his people to return to the promised land. And that's what we see in the beginning of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, 2, 3 And all that takes place about 75 years before Ezra himself actually steps on the scene. So it's kind of confusing as you're reading Ezra. You don't actually meet Ezra until chapter 7. Ezra is living about 75 years after the beginning of this book. Ezra comes onto the scene in chapter 7. He, some, for, it's probably surprising to us. He's, he's still living in Babylon. He's still living in exile. And yet, that's not where his heart is. His heart isn't in Babylon. His heart is in Jerusalem. Because Ezra knows that before the time of Jesus, before the Messiah comes, the glory of God is intricately tied to the land of Israel, specifically with Jerusalem itself. And so he approaches the pagan king, Artaxerxes. He comes to him and says, you know what? I would love to travel to Jerusalem for the sake of the word of God. That's actually what we see just a few verses earlier in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. Notice what it says. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the law granted, or excuse me, the the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was Upon him. So God is at work behind the scenes. The context of this verse hints as to why. God is sending Ezra to teach his people the word of God, to teach his people his very words. In other words, God sees that his people living in the land, their greatest need is to hear the word of God, to have someone open up the Bible and to teach them who he is as revealed in the scriptures. And that's exactly who Ezra is. That's what Ezra does. There's not a lot of information about Ezra in the Bible, and yet everything that we see from him is incredibly impressive. First, we're told about his heart posture when it comes to the word of God. God, this this phrase, Ezra had set his heart, reveals his core commitments. It's talking about the foundation of his life, the lens through which he makes every decision. His entire life is filtered through where he has set his heart. This phrase, set your heart, that that phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to God's work in creation and setting 
the stars in the sky. And nothing, nothing can move those stars. It is, it is firmly established, fixed in place. It's talking about something that is unshakable. So when we're told that Ezra has set his heart on the word of God, we're being told about this unshakable conviction from Ezra to plant his heart firmly on the word of God. Every single one of us has firmly set our hearts on something. And sometimes that's conscious, sometimes that is unconscious. Sometimes we make decisions through a certain lens by prioritizing our family or our career or our comfort or any number of things. And yet, more often than not, I think it's, it's unconscious. We don't plant our hearts on a core conviction. We just rather uh, allow our hearts to be drawn along. They, they naturally drift to, to what is shaping them in our culture, what is most convenient. And yet, whatever the case may be, whether it's a conscious or unconscious type of, of decision, all of us have planted our hearts firmly somewhere. All of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of those things are riding on something. You are going to guide your life by something. Whether it is the approval of others, satisfaction of yourself, for Ezra, it is the word of God. And this is an incredibly important place to start when we consider the role of God when it comes to our spiritual health. Before we get into habits or practices or daily rhythms, we start with the heart. What holds the keys to your life? You were created for the glory of God. Is the glory of God as it is revealed in the scriptures, is that what has captured your hearts or it is the vision of some lesser glory? Where have you set your heart? Where is your heart firmly placed? For Ezra, we see that he has resolved to build his entire life on the word of God. This works itself out in three distinct ways, which is what we see in the rest of this verse. First, we see that Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord could just be, is used in a number of different ways in the Old Testament. Here, it's referring to the written scriptures as revealed by God, given to his people. It's not a specific subsection of the Bible. It's just talking about the Bible itself. Now remember, Ezra, he steps onto the scene. He's leaving Babylon. He's heading toward Jerusalem. Notice the specific reason for his journey to Jerusalem. We see this later on in Ezra chapter 7. Look at verse 25 and 26. And you, Ezra... According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand. Let me, let me back up. This is the pagan king saying this, giving Ezra a command. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. This is astounding. Because here we have this pagan king, and he's saying, you know what, Ezra, here's what I want you to do. I want you to travel to Jerusalem. I want you to appoint leaders for the people of Israel in this province. My only stipulation as a pagan king is that they know the word of God. That's his only requirement here. And if they don't know the word of God, before you let them be in this position of leadership, then you have to teach them the word of God. 
And of course, this implies that Ezra knows the word of God himself, as we've already seen back in verse 6. And how does he get to that point? How does he know the word of God so he can teach other people the word of God so they can be good leaders in the land of Israel? We see it right here. Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord. In other words, Ezra had made a conscious decision to let his life be structured around the pursuit of God in his word. At its best, this is what the study of the word of God is. It is the pursuit of God through his chosen means to reveal himself to humanity. You look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is this powerful psalm psalm that describes two ways that God has revealed himself to humanity. First six verses of Psalm 19, we see David, the author of this psalm. He says, you know what? Look at the marvel of creation. Look Look outside of the night sky and just wonder at how God has revealed his glory and his majesty through creation. And it's hard to disagree with David. Anyone who's just taken a few moments to to just stare up at the night sky on a clear night, overcome with awe and wonder, even if they don't credit this God, it fills us with wonder. And yet after describing the way that God has revealed himself in Psalm 19, in creation, David changes about verse 7 in Psalm 19, and he spends the rest of Psalm 19 looking at how God has revealed himself, not in creation, but how God has revealed himself in his word. Notice his words describing God's word, starting in verse 7 of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." So what Psalm 19 is saying is that while God has revealed himself in his glory, in creation, he has also revealed how we can give him glory, while we can live a life that is pleasing to him, and he reveals that to us through his word. That God has given us the Bible to understand how we can live a life that brings honor and glory to him. And and if we consider what is at stake here, who wouldn't want to fix their lives around the study of this book? You know, when we consider the importance of spiritual health, we have to start by asking ourselves, have we committed to studying the word of God? Have we set our hearts on the study of God's word? Does our, does our life orbit around encountering God in his word, or is his word in some sort of distant orbit? Is it maybe like a, a comet that is oftentimes far off, and yet every once in a while it, it comes near, and, and it might have some effect on our life every now and then, but for the most part, it's distant, it's far beyond reach, and its effect on our lives is almost nothing. Even if we regularly read the word of God, do we study it? Do we not just open our Bibles, but do we open our lives to the Bible? Do we allow God to speak into our lives, to rebuke us, correct us, challenge us, console us when we need to hear those things from the scriptures? Have you set your heart on the word of God? What happens when we do this? What happens when we set our hearts to study the word of God. It's not just a cursory reading of the scriptures, but when we allow God to transform our lives, to shape us through his word, 
That's actually what we see next from Ezra. As we look at Ezra, we see that he doesn't just set his heart to study the law of the Lord, but also to do it or to live out the word of God. One of the most dangerous things you can do with your life is to regularly read the Bible and never let it transform you. That is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. It is deadly to study the scriptures without conforming to the scriptures. That's what we see from the scribes of Jesus' day. Jesus' harshest words of condemnation are for those who are well-versed in the Bible and yet whose chief concern is their status or their own glory. James actually warns against hearing or studying the word of God without ever being a doer of the word of God. It says this in James chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. You see, Ezra was not just content in studying the word of God. He lived it out as well. His life was shaped by the scriptures. I'm reminded of the words of one Puritan. His name was Thomas Chalmers centuries ago, the sum and substance of the preparation needed for a coming eternity is that you, one, believe what the Bible tells you, and two, do what the Bible bids you. We are a part of the EFCA, the Evangelical Church of America. Our statement of faith when talking about the Bible says this, the word of God is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises, and that is spiritual health to not just know the scriptures, but to be transformed by the scriptures. To let the Bible transform us. And as we talk about spiritual health, we have to ask, are we like Ezra? Have we opened up our hearts? Have we set our hearts to, do, to be doers of the word? The text continues, Ezra 7, verse 10, once more. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. You see, not only does Ezra structure his life's direction on the study of God in the scriptures, not only does he commit to live a life that is increasingly conformed to the scriptures, he also dedicates his life to the teaching of the scriptures to others. Now, I'll be honest. You look at verse 10 here. And I've, I've gone back and forth. I've, I've wrestled with this final characteristic here quite a bit. In fact, I mentioned earlier, just kind of in passing, that um, my wife and I, are, are, our youngest son's name is Ezra, and we've been praying this verse over him from before he was born. We actually haven't prayed this section of it. We just want him to be, we'll, we'll be content if he is a studier of God's word and a doer of God's word. And yet the more I thought about it, well, first, in, in one sense, it's true, not, not all of us have this calling to be teachers of God's word. James, again, James describes how this is a unique calling. Not all of us should be teachers. He says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So there's one sense, not, not all of us are called to be teachers of God's word. And yet, as I've been studying this passage this past week, I've also 
I've come around to, to this realization that, you know what, there, there is some truth to the fact that all of us are to be teachers of the word of God to others. That's the heart of the Great Commission. You look at Jesus' mission that he gives to his church in Matthew chapter 28, as, as he's about to ascend into heaven, he, he charges his disciples with these words, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." See, the Great Commission is for all of us. It's not for a, a unique subset of Jesus' disciples, a unique subset of Christians. The heart of the Great Commission is for all of us, and the heart of it is to make disciples. And part of disciple-making is to teach new followers of Jesus to, quote, observe all that I have commanded you. It's very similar to Ezra's language here in Ezra 7, verse 10, to teach God's statutes and rules in Israel. So in a broader sense, this calling to teach the word of God is, is a call to disciple making for all of us, whether that's in your home, with your family, whether that's in one-on-one -on -one settings, whether that's on Wednesday nights with the, with the children and the next generation, with students, any number of ways. The way that God's church has endured for the last 2,000 years is because of discipleship. The reason why the church will endure until Jesus returns for his bride is by people teaching others how to follow Jesus in the scriptures. The church endures when people take seriously the charge to invest in the lives of others with the word of God. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we teaching the word of God to others? Are we discipling others by opening up the scriptures? Again, I, I want to take this, this charge loosely because it will look vastly different for each of us, but as we consider spiritual health, we must ask, am I participating in the mission of God to make disciples of all nations by teaching others the word of God? Here in Ezra 7, we see Ezra sets his heart to study, to do, and to teach the word of God. And when he gets to Judea, he does exactly that. That's what we see in chapter 8, chapter 9. Shortly after he arrives in the land of Israel, he begins teaching the people, and he, and he soon encounters a problem. As he's teaching the people, he, he discovers that many of the people of the land are engaged in a form of idolatry. That's what is described in Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9 describes the marriage of the people of Israel with the pagan nations surrounding them. Ezra 9 doesn't condemn these marriages because they are interracial, because God is the God of all nations. He condemns these because they are a form of idolatry. They are, they are interreligious. In other words, what he's saying is that the worshipers of the true God have, have been completely content with marrying these worshipers of false gods, these false idols, and joining in worship with these other gods. And Ezra, when he, when he becomes aware of this, he's appalled, he's astounded. And we read these words, this description of Ezra and the others who, who long for the word of God. We, we read this in Ezra chapter 9, verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me, Ezra, while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. 
Here we see one final description of a heart that is set on the word of God. It is a heart that trembles at the word of God. We are told that Ezra is appalled by the actions of these Israelites who engage in idolatry. The rest of the faithful are those who tremble at the word of God. For those who are committed to the word of God, they shudder at the very thought of disobeying the commands of God as revealed in Scripture. For the people of the word, a frown on the face of God should be our greatest anguish. And a smile on the face of God, our greatest delight. To people who tremble at his word. It means to be appalled at the notion of acting contrary to the scriptures, of not believing the promises of the scriptures. That's more than we can bear if we tremble at the word of God. Do you tremble before God's word? Is the idea of of offending the God of the Bible so unthinkable that it makes you shudder? Are you spiritually healthy? You know, as I consider the marvelous example of Ezra here in the scriptures, I, I, I confess I feel inadequate. I study the scriptures, but many times it's just perfunctory. It's just what I do because that's my habit. I'm a doer of the word, but only sometimes and only in the areas where it's relatively easy for me to do that. And I teach, but do I make disciples at home? And as much as I would like to to say that I tremble at the word of God, there, there are just as many times I'm too busy or too concerned with other things to think deeply about the scriptures. And I ask myself, is my heart set on the word of God? And if I answer honestly the the answer is sometimes maybe maybe even a lot of the time but always imperfectly and you know as we begin this series on spiritual health i think it's important to remind ourselves that we do indeed desire to provide ourselves with this honest assessment of our spiritual maturity and yet one of the dangers of doing so is that we could think that God loves us more when we are more spiritually mature or that we are somehow earning our place in God's eyes with our health. I just want to say that nothing could be further from the truth. There's another passage in the scriptures that talks about the importance of trembling at the very word of God. It's found in the final chapter of Isaiah. It says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So Isaiah chapter 66 reminds us of the greatness, the glory of God. He is the creator of all things. Nothing, not even a temple can contain him. And indeed, in one sense, all of creation is his temple. He's worthy of our worship at all times and all places. The grandeur of God is on full display in this verse and a half at the beginning of Isaiah 66. And we might be wondering, how on earth can I hope to approach this glorious God? And it's a really good question because if you look at the beginning of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, we have this vision from Isaiah the prophet where he sees the throne room of God, he sees the courtroom of heaven, and he is struck with terror over his sin. 
And he realizes there's no possible way I can enter into the presence of this good and amazing and holy and clean God with how sinful I am. And we ask ourselves, how can I possibly hope to approach the greatness of this king of all creation? And the answer is actually given to us at the end of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You want to know the type of people that God welcomes into his presence? It's those that are humble. Those who are contrite in spirit. Those who are sorrowful and repentant over their sin. Those who tremble at his very word. We are not welcomed into the presence of God because of an impressive resume, but through repentance and faith in King Jesus. And so as we talk about the importance of spiritual health, I don't want us to miss that truth. That the Lord Jesus saves people so that we can grow in Christ-likeness and maturity. He doesn't save us when we attempt to reach that maturity on our own. You see, God saves us and receives glory when he saves us in spite of our sin, and he receives glory from our growth in Christ-likeness, but God also receives glory when we fail and we cry out in repentance because when we do that, we are saying that God and his ways are better than the lesser glories that we have chosen. Where have you set your heart? Is your heart set on the word of God? But this is the one to whom I will look. He is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father, we long to be a people who tremble at your word. Help us to do that, God. Help us to be a people who have set our very hearts on the word of God. We cannot do it on our own. We need your spirit to strengthen us, equip us, to turn our affections to the glory and majesty of God. Help us, God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.